I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls are hot. I thought we had to have all the answers right now. And now? I'm kind of liking the fact that I don't. If one of us goes to war, we all go to war. Welcome back to Love and a Fighter. I'm your host, Charles DeGisco, and it is great to be back here with all of you. This week was our closest poll of all time, so I'm just going to get right into it. Um, the question was, does your significant other's credit score affect whether or not you'll want to marry your partner? So this was the first time it's ever been completely even. It was 50-50. I had the most respondents ever reply to this poll directly, so that was pretty cool. And I can tell you, and this is really important, there was no trend in the data, meaning there was no like rhyme or reason, like more women felt it was important than men or more affluent people felt it was less important than others or men versus women, age, demographics. It didn't matter. It was an even split in every regard. So there was no like scientific finding from it. It was literally just a 50-50 split. I know these folks too. So like I know everybody on the who's voting for the most part. I know their economic status, where they came from. Like I have a pretty good community on here that I'm, I'm aware of. And it really, there was just no... I don't want to say consistency, but there was no data to make a study of, quite frankly. So I thought that was actually pretty cool because it really comes down to like your personal beliefs and what you might have experienced that like could lead you to feel a certain way. And some folks are a little bit more uh, opinionated than others. I think for the folks who said that it does matter, and yes, you should take it into account, um, I... I you know, I can't say like, oh, it's more fathers looking out for their daughter or, you know, women looking for a more suitable husband. It's really, guys, there was none of that. But I think it's more for the individual experience of dealing with somebody who, who has really bad credit. Um, I can tell you that credit is so important financially. It's like such a boring thing to talk about. But basically, you know, you, you pay your bills on time, right? You don't over leverage your debt to your assets and, you, you know, you pay what you owe. So if you don't do that, or for any reason something happens and you can't do that, your credit score will be negatively affected. So it is somewhat telling, but if somebody, you know, at 18, they're on their own, they have doctor's bills like myself and they're going to pay them out through, you know, for years and they miss a couple payments, which didn't happen to me. But, you know, isn't that funny? Like, as I'm saying, there's a, so I have a good credit score and I'm proud of it, right? But even, like, I felt compelled to say, like, oh, I didn't, I didn't miss any payments, you know, just for whatever reason. But, but I think there's so many ways that it could happen that's very understandable. You're young, you get some bad luck, or you make a purchase that you don't really realize what it costs. Like There's so many different things that go into it. And ultimately, I get it, right? Because like, if you haven't learned this stuff and somebody hasn't taught it to you, it's really not that easy to figure out, right? You have to trust a banker, somebody who's a teller behind the desk because they're encouraging you to get credit cards because you're making money and it's clear there's income coming into the accounts. Like, well, you qualify for this and then, hey man, if you have this, you could buy that and you've always wanted that and it's just a few small payments of this, right? And next thing you know, you're in a hole. So bad credit, I, I do think it gets a bad rap. Um, not in the sense that it's not important or that it's not a good measure. I think all of these things matter. But just in general, it's so easy to have that happen. Now, on the other side of the token, I will tell you that it's usually indicative of bad choices. Of the women I've dated, the one with the worst credit also tended to make the worst choices. Just very short-sighted, right? Just couldn't really 
see big picture, didn't have the discipline to plan or just just kind of did whatever they felt like doing, right? She was she lived really off of like temporary feelings instead of logic. I hope that didn't sound like Ben Shapiro, but you know what I mean? Like it was just too much of a lean on the feel of the moment as opposed to maybe the right thing to do or the bigger picture. And in in any relationship I've had since then, I can tell you that I you know, I witnessed credit score negatively affect her life, but it didn't really, doesn't really matter to me. I think I'd want to know it, right? Like I'd want to know student loan debt because that could be quite crippling. But if I ever got to the point where I'm ready for marriage, would I really let something like that stop me? Like, I feel like I'd have to be so into the person that it would be something I'd be like, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out because I would be so head over heels to get married that none of that would really matter. So like logically, I'm like, oh, you don't want a lot of debt, right? That'll hold you back. And you don't want a bad credit score because that'll stop you from doing other things as well. But if I care about you enough that I'm willing to get married, which is a bad idea in general, like it's just a bad contract in general, I think that those other financial factors wouldn't play as big of a role because you already have so much to lose if it doesn't work out, right? So, you know, I, I, I really found this one interesting because almost every other poll I've had, there's been some either like you could tell somebody was the cheater or the cheated or... You know, I think each time I talked about something, there was people voting based on something that had happened to them. And this was the first time I think I had a poll where people were just voting based on what they thought objectively, you know? And um, there was no real trends in the data. There was no relationships between the people who were, or the type of people who were voting one way or the other. It was really just completely random and it was completely even. And I have a real diverse friend group, a real diverse uh, group of followers of the podcast, a real diverse group from DMA. Like, just in general, my circles tend to be really, uh, they're just, they come from all different schools of thought. And this poll was definitely evident of that. So, I, you know, I did want to hear more. I got some really good info, uh, input from a few folks, one of which talked about actually like, hey, at my age, I should be worried about student loans, not credit score, because you can always rebuild credit score. It's temporary. It's not permanent, which is true. And student loans can be real, more, much more crippling, right? If you go to buy a house, but you combined have $210,000 in student loan debt, which by the way, nowadays is not that crazy. Not that crazy. You know, it, God, it gives me chills to say that, you know? But, but as somebody who's older, you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s or even your late 30s and you're dating and somebody's got a historically bad credit score, it's like, well, what's going on here? Like totally get that it happens, especially, you know, like all the reasons I had just mentioned when you're younger, but how has it continued to happen throughout your life? Like what, what's going on here? What decisions are being made on a day-to-day basis that might have you missing bills and, and creating debt, um, but living maybe a particular lifestyle or, you know, maybe more bad stuff had happened. I mean, you never really know, but you would want to keep an eye out for that because I do think that somebody's financial literacy at a certain point can kind of be indicative of their decision-making. Now, I say that because I'm pretty fiscally responsible, but I also will tell you, like, when I first got a, when I got a, a solid-paying job, um, it was after the Defense Department, I started consulting. I bought a car, and the monthly payment was, like, 10% per month of what I was making per year, right? So if I was making... $40,000, my car payment would be $400. If I was making $100,000, my car payment would be $1,000 per month. And uh, quite frankly, I didn't understand why I couldn't afford it. 
until I started tracking my finances over a period of time. And I was like, oh, wow, this amount of money is really hindering my lifestyle, number one. And two, it's taken away from other things I could be doing. And it was a bad financial choice. Now, <laughs> the next car I bought, which was similar, but quite a bit more affordable, better financing. It you know, didn't have some of the stuff, but honestly, it was a better car in every way. And I just was a little bit more peculiar about my purchase. Um, it was still a V8, it was still a stick shift. It was actually faster and it was a lot nicer, but I just took more time in the purchase. I didn't rush it, right? So it became a better financial decision. And then when I got rid of that car into the car that I have now, again, you know, my payment stayed the same, actually, you know, spot on, but the car was worth a lot more. Right. So I took a lot of time. I made sure I had positive equity and that's kind of how I was able to continue driving the same types of vehicles, which are totally unnecessary. But I did so in a reasonably intelligent way. I think a lot of it just not rushing. Right. So I, I, everybody can be susceptible to making a bad purchase and getting themselves in a bad agreement or whatever it might be. But in general, um, I think you always want to kind of understand somebody's mindset for why they are in the financial situation they're in, whether it's their credit store score or a lot of student loans or whatever it might be. While at the same time, I don't think it should be such a disqualifier, right? If it's indicative of poor decision-making, that's a red flag. But some people just have bad luck. You know, some things just don't go the right way. So uh, it's an interesting topic, and I was really pleased to see that it was such an even split and that for the first time there was really no trend in the data that we got. So I think that's a good reflection on everybody because everybody felt that way. They felt their vote um, for no real stereotypical reason. And I think that's good. Anytime you can break those stereotypes. So uh, be on the lookout for the next poll for this week. This was a real interesting one. Moving on, we did have some fights this weekend. So this was the first fight card, I would say, besides the one that happened in March that was supposed to be in London with Tyron Woodley and Leon Edwards. This was the first fight card in the coronavirus era, especially post-Fight Island, which did not result, I think, in a single uh, UFC staff coronavirus positive te- a positive coronavirus test. It was the first event that had really seemed like, oh, we're in the middle of a pandemic because they had planned, I think there was 14 or 15 fights originally planned. And then by the end of the card, they had a total of 16 fights get canceled. Meaning throughout the entire time this card existed, they started with 15 fights and there was 16 fight cancellations. So there was more cancellations than original fights on the card. That's a problem. And that would continue on fight night. So Gerald Mearshire, ah, man, I apologize. I can never really pronounce his name. Hang on. I think that's what it is. I wrote it down, Gerald Mearshire. So he got a positive corona test on fight day, three hours before fight night. He gets pulled from the card. Then the first fight of the main card, Trevin Giles, who is a police officer from Houston, he fainted on the walkout, meaning they were literally gloved up. The commission had signed off. Gloves were taped. He was walking out, and he fainted. So the UFC had to cut, cut to commercial, and everything got delayed. They pull his fight from the card, right? I don't think I've ever seen something like that happen, at least since Mitrione and Struve, which that might have been like 2012, 2013, maybe even more recent, but it's been a long time. And th- that was like, they weren't walking out yet. That was, he fainted in the warm-up room. This gentleman fainted as he was walking out. And, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's terrible. It's, 
you know, you feel bad for the guy. He got up and he was like, no, no, I'm good. I can fight. And the commission was like, bro, there's no way. So he, he was taken to the hospital. They're checking him out. They're running some tests. Good. You got to do all that stuff. Um, it's hard not to feel for him. But this card really went through it. And there was one other one that I actually wanted to talk about that seemed like it was a little bit separate from coronavirus, but problematic nonetheless. And that was Eric Spicely. So he got called up to the UFC, won a couple fights, lost a couple fights, actually beat Tiago Silva, by the way, which is a big win. And then he got cut, and then he won a few more fights, and he got called back to the UFC, and then he had some other issues not go his way. And then this fight, he had um, he had a tough, tough fight with Darren Wynn, and he said that he started taking antidepressants after that. And this was his first fight and his first weight cut back since taking those antidepressants. And actually, uh, it, it allowed it, it caused him to fail, right? He was not able to make weight for this fight, and the UFC subsequently cut him. And I get why the UFC did it. You know, it, he was a little bit of a journeyman at this point, and you know, you, you got to make room on the roster, especially in these weird times where you have so many people who are like just dying for a spot. Like you have a an influx of supply for fights, uh, for fighters, excuse me. You have a high demand for fights and the inability to put them on. So it's like the first time I think there's been like there's a supply in the fighters, there's a demand in the events, but there's no way of. Uh, providing that demand and satisfying that demand. So you have like an excess of supply, which is causing a lot of good things for some fighters, right? You have a guy like Gilbert Burns, who's made his way up and made his run to the UFC and is now going to be fighting for a title. And on the other side of it, you have guys like Eric Spicely here who's getting cut. And I think that might be a little bit premature, a little bit premature. But what's more problematic to me is that he was taking antidepressants after a fist fight. And there is, this is a, a significant sign here that there might be more issues at stake when we start talking about head trauma. And, you know, that's concerning to me. That's concerning to me. Of course, I feel bad that he got cut. I feel bad that he missed weight. He's a gamer. He's not the type to, like, break like that. But, man, I mean, he, he was in a, a fist fight. And, okay, we're talking about a, a cage competition. Totally get that. But he was in a fist fight, and afterwards he had to start taking antidepressants. You know, as I've gotten older, I get this itch to compete, and I'm like, oh, man, I, I can beat some of these guys. Not really at the UFC level, but, you know, you get that, like, oh, I'm training in here, I'm, I'm working with pros, I feel like I'm doing pretty good. But when you get in there and you're putting on those small gloves and you're throwing as hard as you can and you're cracking people and you're taking damage and your body's banged up, man, it is a really tough way to make a living. And I'm pretty happy with my decision to go ahead and, and continue working and not just giving everything up to chase this dream of fighting, which, as it would be, wasn't ever really my, my main dream, right? It was something I enjoyed doing. My real dream is obviously to do commentary. So, you, you know, you, you hear about these things, and as I get older, I'm sure at 29, my perspective is going to change when I'm 39. I'll be even more grateful. Um, but, man, it's not an easy way to make a living, and... You, you you hope for your big break and you hope that you get to the, the level that a guy like Conor McGregor's at or, or even some of these other top tier guys but for career fighters outside of a few of them it's a very short career and it's not a lot of money and it's taken a lot there's a lot you're paying down the road you're, you're really and I love this sport more than anything but I do think we have to find a way to just make some adjustments so it's a little bit safer because you know for all the talk about boxing being super unsafe, which I agree that it's obviously a, naturally it's an unsafe sport, a lot of trauma to the head. In sparring, guys are wearing headgear, and we've talked about this in all time. Headgear does prevent concussion. It does limit the damage you take, so it is a net positive to take. Just end of story. The studies actually prove that. Um, by the way, I have been wearing headgear when I've been sparring. 
and I've been doing a lot better and I've been getting hit a lot less. So even though I know I'm taking a bigger risk, it's been paying off better, right? But if I was trading with some of these pros or we were just doing boxing and I couldn't rely on a takedown and all these other things, like maybe I'd be better off wearing that headgear every time. I'm digressing a little bit, but the fact of the matter is you have amateur boxers who are having 450 fights and there's legitimate amateur rule sets and you're using a certain set of gloves and there's not as bad for the average fighter, for the average boxer, it's not as bad neurologically and physically. For MMA, even as an amateur, you can go through some, you're getting hit with shins and fists and little gloves and the only difference for a lot of places between am and amateur rule sets is the uh, the time of the round. Three minutes. I fought pro rules as an amateur. My entire amateur career in every sport it was always pro rules and it's like, okay, you know, no shin guards, getting cracked in the head with a shin, you know, like, just a lot of things I think need to be improved. And I think you have organizations like CAMO, which is the California Athletic Mixed Martial Arts Organization. Um, they do a good job. And, and I think that there's others that the knowledge is getting better, but I just think we need to make some adjustments to make the sport safer. And, you know, weight cutting aside, which is an issue in itself, for guys like Eric Spicely, that's, that should be really concerning for not just, um, you know, fans of the sport. I think for other fighters as well, you got to really be like, all right, what's going on here and what's causing this? And we really got to learn more about the human brain because we know we're not doing it a service, but I think we need to be aware of how much of a disservice we're doing. With that said, I'm going to get to the fights. I really just want to talk about a couple, but Jennifer Maya steamrolled uh, Joanne Calderwood. And it was really, you know, Joanne has been a top contender in her division for quite some time and she's always been a top 10. And this was, you really saw her got pieced up pretty good. She was gotten, getting beat up on the feet by Maya, Jennifer Maya. No relation to Damien Maya, I don't think. And then when it went to the ground, you really saw a big discrepancy. And, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where there's this depth issue in women's MMA where you don't have enough talent to, to really showcase the talent that you do have. Uh, you saw that with Ronda Rousey, less so with Amanda Nunes, who's beaten everybody. But now that she has beaten everybody, it's kind of like... All right, who's next, you know? So with that in mind, um, I think that it was just kind of another wake-up call. Like, oh, there's there's a gap in this division, and we need, we need some more fresh talent. Um, Calderwood's been, been at it for a while. You know, even though she's still young and, and the division doesn't have a lot of depth, she's one of those fighters not too dissimilar from maybe Karate Hadi or or some of these other fighters like Jessica I, who have been at it a long time. They've been fighting top competition, but when it comes to beating the best, they can't quite get it done. And there's just a gap between them and everybody else. And Maya looked good, so you definitely want to give her props. But it, but again, we need to figure something out here. And I don't have all the answers with the women's divisions to get a little bit more depth and talent at the level it needs to be to compete, um, especially for a main card fight. Now, that's not to say neither of these girls were at that level, but I think when you get past these two, that's when you run into depth issues, if you see what I'm saying. Like, they're not the best example of the lack of depth, but what happens in the matchmaking immediately after that fight, that makes that lack of depth so apparent. Also, Vicente Luque, my goodness, man, he's an amazing striker. I think he takes a lot of damage. I do. He just seems like he's got to get rocked a little bit before he really puts it on people, but he is so tremendously talented. He kind of reminds me of a tall, uh, well, maybe not taller, but a more kickboxing-oriented Calvin Guitar, whereas Calvin Guitar does really good boxing, and he does a great job of blocking. Um, I think Vicente Luque does a good job of showing up with that Thai kickboxing-style shell, 
and he, he utilizes his kicks really, really well. And we saw that with those calf kicks that he was throwing on Randy Brown. And it really opened up a lot of those harder shots that he landed. So he just constantly had Randy Brown guessing. And I think I think Luke Cage is really, really looking good. And you got to switch it up, right? I mean, I, I believe he's, he's fought so many tough people, right? He's fought Kamaru Usman. He's fought these top guys in the in division. But he's really proving himself. Every time he goes out there, he looks better than ever. And I thought he had a tough fight against Wonderboy, but going into the third round, it was quite close. And it was just in that third round that Wonderboy really figured him out and really was able to put it together. So there's some really interesting matchups for Luke, and he's he's a hard guy not to be a fan of, and especially as a coach and a fighter, like he's somebody you want to look at. Um, despite I do think he gets hit too much, he's somebody you want to look at moving forward uh, in in regards to how you can improve as a fighter and kind of find a guy to emulate. Derek Brunson at Edmund Shabazian. So this was the main event. So Derek Brunson was like a plus 350 or something like that, underdog. And basically everybody felt that he was going to get tuned up here by Shabazian, including myself, and that Shabazian is like the next big up-and-comer. And in the first round, I was like, wow, Shabazian looks pretty sharp. Brunson's hanging in there, but he's just so wild. He's always, you know, on his feet. He just doesn't seem like he's got his feet set. He always, I always feel like he's about to fall over as he punches and just he's so he just looks really out of control like he needs to settle in and, and get his footwork right but he rode that first round and then he had a you know some some good moments himself and then in the second round he really put it on Shabazian and he kind of just broke him down it felt like he grinded him out and Shabazian was putting so much on his punches and I thought Brunson did a terrific job of moving out of the way and slipping and blocking and basically just avoiding those hard shots and really making Shabazian work without blowing his own cardio right without without uh spending all the gas in his tank either in that third uh that second round he got the takedown and he really put it on shabazi and landed a ton of ground and pound it was another rough stoppage for uh our man herb dean who i like that he kind of kept that kept the fight going with like three four seconds left i think he could have stopped it but Shabazian kept moving and it wasn't till the last two shots where i was like "Ooh, this fight's over and then herb dean kind of like did this slow stop thing and then let the, let the fighters get to there. You know, Shabazian got right back up. I think that's what Herb Dean was waiting for. He gets right back up, goes to his corner, says he wants to go out, but his body language says otherwise. And then right in the beginning of the third round, Brunson just kind of puts it on him, and, and Shabazian shells up, and, and Herb calls the fight immediately. He doesn't really wait to see what happens, which was the good move. He, he stopped it very quickly in the third round, which I felt was correct. You could make the argument that he could have stopped in the end of the second, but... That was a no-win situation for Herb because if he did stop it at the end of the second, people would have been criticizing him, saying, "Oh, you got to let the fight." I mean, he was almost there. He was he was moving. They would have found a reason to criticize Herb. And then I think in this case they might still do that, but because he was so quick in that third round, I think it kind of takes some of that away. So as a whole, I didn't really provide too much analysis on the fight itself. Brunson's sloppy. Let's just get right to it. Everything he does is a little bit sloppy, but he's a very good athlete. He's very tough, and he's a veteran of the sport. And he's going to find a way to keep himself in the fight against anybody. He's knocked out some big names. He's only fought big names. And it just seems like he needs to get a little bit more time to settle his feet. And at 36, I don't know, maybe it never happens, but he's still proven that he could beat anybody in the world. And he's very much a top 10 fighter. So if he's winning this fight, I think that you want to give him Darren Till when Darren Till gets back from his uh, recovery, his knee recovery. And I think that's a good matchup because even though Darren Till's coming off a loss, he's coming off a loss to a former champ who had just lost the title. And it was a close fight that really could have gone either way. So I thought both fighters' stock went up. And Brunson presents some interesting challenges with Till because he's not just going to stand. 
with Darren Till, kind of like what Whitaker did, even though he did shoot those takedowns, that was more to set up the next shot, right? Brunson will legitimately try to take you down, put you on your back, and keep you there. He's going to use the clinch. He's going to make things dirty. And he's really going to use his size and strength to open up his striking. And I think that that's something that would be a good challenge for Darren Till. And I think that would bring out the best in Darren Till. And I think both guys would actually end up... It would be another fight where that's a really good matchup stylistically. You don't... I mean, for 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 Brunson, he's already fought Jacare twice. I believe he fought Yoel. He fought Whitaker. He fought Israel Adesanya. I, I'm not sure if he's fought Jared Cannonier, but for Cannonier, that the fight doesn't really make sense. So I think for Brunson, it, you know, that's the fight to make. I think you take your time off, enjoy your win. You've got a big win over an undefeated prospect who's probably going to have to you know, rack together a couple of impressive wins before he gets back into that top five conversation, or at least in terms of matchups, like fighting somebody in the top five. So I think that's what you got to do. You know, go Darren Till and, and let's see what happens from there. But a solid fight card. It's kind of like the lame duck season now because you have between this week and next week, uh, and next week there's some decent fights, but really you're just kind of waiting in anticipation for Stipe Miocic and Daniel Cormier. And that whole card in general is pretty stacked. So that's what I'm most excited for, but there will be fights next weekend to talk about too. I don't want to leave you guys on a cliffhanger from the Halo conversation. So since we last spoke, they... 343 Industries, which is the developer, actually came up and they acknowledged like, hey, we hear you guys, we're sorry, we know it doesn't look that good. So they talked about it, they heard what the community was saying, and they, they really seemed like they're going to do their best to to bring it together. And I can tell you, you know, Halo fans in general, they think that, especially for the diehards that dominate social media, anything that's not Halo 3, they throw their panties in a bunch. And I, I honestly, Halo 3 is not even the best Halo. Uh, it, the storyline was quite weak, the multiplayer was excellent, but the, they just kind of didn't do a justice to the story that was from Halo 2. And Halo 2 had a really good story, as did Halo 1, right? Bungie always had so much at their disposal. They had all of these great books to use. And they really just... And I've read all of them. Full nerd here, guys. And they just didn't do enough with that material. This was like Microsoft-endorsed primary source material, especially by the, by the author Eric Nyland. And they just never really took that as a blueprint of what they should follow for the storyline. And he wrote a better story than they could have ever done. And I understand they were under crunches and there's production things and I get a lot of it. And I love what Bungie did with the Halo series. But they didn't really leave 343 with a lot to work with. So when 343 picked it up, I thought Halo 4's story was excellent. I think that they went a little bit too far with the multiplayer. It just seems like it was kind of like they, they, half, they kind of half-assed it, right? It was like they half tried to be Call of Duty and half tried to be Halo and instead they really didn't either well whereas I think if they put a little more effort in it could have been both really well but the campaign was excellent and it's, it did such a good job of setting up Halo 5 which oddly enough they used to then make a tremendous multiplayer and a quite poor single player but graphically they were moving in the right direction uh, from a sound perspective they were doing well so they had like the visuals down and they had the experience down they just needed to tighten up some of the actual gameplay and some of the storytelling. And you have all these people who are, you know, bitching and moaning and they hate 343 because it's anything other than Halo 3 is just going to be a letdown to them. When the reality is, like I said, it's a, it's a game that came out in 2007. They are holding on to feelings of nostalgia, which is so dangerous because that's going to prevent you from moving forward. And the industry, the gaming in general, is it's so much different in 2020 than it was in 2007. You got people who are bitching and moaning about there being a potential Battle Royale mode, which is hilarious because it's like, yeah, 40 million people play Call of Duty Warzone. Fortnite has been out for what, six years? 
hasn't had any updates, people just keep playing it. Maybe not six years. I don't know. But it's been out for a while. And people just keep playing it because they like it. They like that. Mo- and, and it's not a visually appealing game. It's actually quite silly, I think, in a lot of ways. I'm not a fan of it, but it tells you what the market is pushing for. So to get all bent out of shape just at the fact that there's a mode that you don't have to play, it's not like it's going to be only be that mode. Kind of tells you a little bit about the fans. And a lot of these fans, by the way, aren't real fans. They're not. They're not. They're just living through nostalgia. They're not reading the books like I am. They're not. They're not engaging on the on you know Reddit, Twitter for like constructive criticism like I am. They're just doing this to you know get their get all riled up. A lot too much emotion. They're just freaking out over things because it's not their way. When they wouldn't even have the slightest clue of how to do it because their best memories are from their junior year of high school, staying up till three in the morning drinking Mountain Dew. Hey, you know what? I'm sorry you didn't make your life better. Because I can tell you, if you peaked in high school and your fondest memories are playing Halo 3 in the basement with your buddies, which no doubt is a great memory, I don't want your life and I feel bad for you. And that's not, I'm not hating on him. I'm just saying, that came out so rough, didn't it? But what I'm really trying to say is, you got to move forward. You have to accept the games are going to go forward. And I think that 343 is in a good spot to do it. And I know a lot of people tune into this podcast for... MMA and dating analysis, and now I'm giving you some Halo analysis. You gotta let the game move forward. You gotta introduce a lot of wide scale, large scale battles. You need a lot of people going on at once. You need chaos. You need things that are really gonna get people engaged in it because the bar has been set so high that the four four versus four Slayer that you could play endlessly all night in 2007, that's just not happening anymore. That's just not what people are doing. And that's not what the masses want. Gaming has evolved, right? I love muscle cars from the 70s. They look great, they sound great, tremendous. But if you had to drive one every single day, you'd hate your life because they smell bad. This is before, you know, catalytic converters. They 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 idle rough. They get terrible fuel mileage. They can't brake for shit. They can't turn for shit. They're not really even that fast. Like all of these things go into it why you would not actually want to drive one of those daily. You would take your Toyota Camry over that 10 out of 10 times. And I love it. I would, I would die for a, a beautiful 1970 Chevelle in a 442. Bring it. Let's go. Do you know how hard that clutch probably is to push down? It'd be like doing a leg press at the gym. What, what I'm saying is things move forward. Time goes on and things get better. And you have to, you can guide that change in a way that you feel would be best. But you can't get mad at that change from occurring because it takes away that feeling of nostalgia you have which in this case is from 2007. So that is my Halo rant for the day. But they 343 is making moves, and they are making adjustments. So I'm super happy to see that. And um, and for what it's worth, some of my best memories are actually from high school, playing video games late at night with my buddies. So maybe that came off a little rough, but we're going to keep it in here. For now, I hope everybody has a great rest of their week. I hope you guys are enjoying the new format. If you have any topics you want me to bring up in a poll or discuss in general, Please don't hesitate to hit me up on either the, the Love and the Fighter Instagram page or my own personal one. We're super interactive. You guys know the drill. Get involved. Give me some topics. We'll keep talking to them. We're on this journey, and we're not stopping anytime soon. So everybody has a great week, and I'll be back next week for the next episode of the Love and the Fighter.